You imagine being told by God that you are going to give this one last message to your people and then you're gonna go up on that mountain and you're gonna die. That is the prompting behind the whole book of Deuteronomy. This is the final of the five books of the Pentateuch. It is what closes out, traditionally what's known as the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's possible we're calling this book by the wrong name. In Deuteronomy 17, 18, the Hebrew word, a copy of the law, were translated by the Catholic Church's Latin Vulgate, Deuteronomy, as in second law. And so we've called it Deuteronomy. It doesn't actually mean a second law, it means a copy of the law, but we've taken that transliteration of a Latin phrase used by the Catholic Church as possible mistranslation of a phrase, and we've made that the title of the book. There's not actually an inspired title within the Holy Spirit-inspired text, so it's to totally possible we're calling this book by the wrong name. But I'm gonna still call it Deuteronomy, is that okay? Just because that's what it's called in my Bible. But just so you know, it's possible God doesn't call this book Deuteronomy. <laughs> That's the name we gave it out of a translation error. But it is the final of the books. It is written by Moses, perhaps with the exception of its final chapter, because the 34th chapter of Deuteronomy describes the death of Moses. Now, God is perfectly capable of giving a man inspiration for what is to transpire around his own death. He is inspired, after all, to other biblical writers, events that will take place centuries after they've died. So he's perfectly capable of telling someone how he's going to die, and then that man transcribing that for us. So it's possible that Moses is the author of chapter 34, even though it describes Moses' death. I believe it's likely that Joshua wrote the 34th chapter of Deuteronomy. Because the whole point of the passing of the torch, the passing of the anointing from Moses to Joshua is that just as the Lord was with Moses, so he would be with Joshua. And so Joshua inheriting that anointing, inheriting the Holy Spirit's calling and inheriting that responsibility as the leader of Israel would write the final chapter on his predecessor. And then the very next book recorded in the canon of scripture is Joshua. Now, if it were not Moses, if it were not Joshua who wrote the final chapter of this book, then it is a scribe who is inspired by the same Holy Spirit who spoke through Moses, the larger text of the whole Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now Deuteronomy. Though it reiterates events that transpire in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, it does so with additional insights behind the curtain of, of the tent of meeting, if you will, insights into why God told Moses to do what he did. It's gonna lay out the law of God. The book of Deuteronomy is the most frequently quoted Old Testament book in the whole New Testament. When Satan tempted Jesus by thrice eisegeting texts, removing them from their pericope, divorcing them from their original intent and context, and tempted Jesus with verses he cherry-picked out, Jesus responded with three phrases from Deuteronomy given in perfect accordance with their original intent, in perfect accordance with their proper contextualization. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy. This book is all over the New Testament it gives us the moral law of God. The Ten Commandments first given in Exodus are here reiterated, but it also gives us other exhaustive laws. 
God spoke to Moses the Ten Commandments to give to the people, and then he spoke to Moses individually on some of the finer points of, of the rules, the regulations of the Old Testament, which he then gave to the people. Some of these laws given by God have influenced laws today. Deuteronomy 22.8, for example, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. A parapet is the railing of a balcony that should go around the roof of your house. This is the oldest recorded liability insurance ever. <laughs> These are some of the apodictic and ceremonial laws. These are some of the regulatory laws that taught Israel how to function as a theocracy, a nation being ruled by God. It also helped them philosophically prepare for the transition from being a nomadic nation wandering in the desert to residing in the promised land that God has called them to. God is giving specifics to Israel, but he's also indicating more about his heart by showing us what is right, showing us what is wrong, recording it in stone by his own finger onto stone tablets given to Moses to show us this is the law of God. That law of God has not been abolished by the work of Jesus in the New Testament. Rather, the whole Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We are going to, in this sermon, look at God's law given in the moral sense in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, in which Jesus takes some of these same moral laws and shows us their full extent and how drastically short we all fall from them. We're going to look at how God has set the standard for that which is right, that which is wrong, and then we're going to show how Jesus even even indicates what's happening in our hearts in regard to these laws. Okay, so this, is, this, this opening text could beat you up a little bit, ready your heart for that, and then when we go to Matthew, it's gonna get way worse. Welcome to Highlands Community Church. But it's okay, it's okay, because in the last two minutes and 43 seconds of this sermon, there's lots of hope, okay? Set your heart on the hope, because this is a difficult text we're going to cover a lot of ground. I will not exhaust this text in this sermon. Rather, my intention today and my first true sermon laying out the larger context of Deuteronomy is to equip you with an interpretive lens. Okay, I'm not going to fully teach you the book of Deuteronomy today. I'm going to give you a lens through which you can rightly interpret it. I'm going to show you Old Testament law, New Testament grace. And as New Testament believers, this is how we read the law. Do you understand? So I do not mean to exhaust the text. I cannot possibly do that in the time constraints provided. Rather, I want to show you law of the Old Testament, grace of the New Testament. That's how salvation works. If you struggle with, struggle with the war in your own heart between like this law of God, where he has said certain things, and he has set the standard whereby you may recognize sin as sinful, and then you know in your heart of hearts, like you want to honor God because of the Holy Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you who causes you to want to honor God, but then you still have this sin nature that you were born with. I mean, like you were born knowing how to sin. Like I don't have to teach my sons how to punch each other on the basketball court. Like they're just born knowing how to do that. Like I have to teach them holiness, right? I have to teach them how to repent from sin, how to listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting. 
Have you ever noticed that? Like, have you ever had to teach your kids? All right, here's how you sin, kids. Like, they, you don't need to ever have that lesson. They, they just come out with black belts in sin. You've got to instruct them in the law of God. You've got to instruct them in grace and holiness and walking in step with the spirit of God. That's what we have to actually instruct. That's what we have to train. That's what's foreign to us because we were born with an innate proclivity unto depravity. We need not be coached in sin. We will invent that ourselves. It will flow from the marrow of our bones because we're sinful. My skeptical friend, you're not morally neutral. Your eyes, the lenses through which you view morality is stained by the sin nature. We were born sinful and every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. That's Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We all have fallen short. We all have sinned in many ways. If you're struggling with the war within, you can relate to Paul. In Romans 7, he describes this exact tension, knowing what the Old Testament law says in Deuteronomy and knowing what New Testament grace is in Jesus. He describes it this way, but now we have been released from the law. This is a New Testament lens for looking at Old Testament laws. Since we have died to what has held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. He goes on to say, like, I don't understand what I do. What I don't want to do, I do. And what I do, I don't want to do. Like, I, I want to honor you, God, but I keep, I keep falling back into temptation from time to time. Who will rescue me from this body of death? What Paul's describing is the tension of the heart of the believer who wants to repent from sin. And this ongoing struggle will last as long as your heart is beating on this earth, Christian. This is a process called sanctification. And it lasts as long as your physical body is alive. But this is why we as Christians have like this celebratory element in funerals. Why there's a little bit of joy in our funerals is because I know it's weird, we actually have hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that when the Christian dies, their battle in sanctification is over. And what comes after sanctification? Glorification. We know that our brother or sister in Christ, whose earthly shell remains in the casket, is now spiritually perfected in heaven. Their battle through the process of sanctification is, for over, is forever over. That law of sin and death no longer reigns in their bodies. They're in the perfect presence of Jesus forever. So if you struggle with the law and its standard and your own innate sinfulness that will drag you back into the grave from whence Jesus called you by name, you can relate to Paul in the same exact tension because in the tension we are refined. It is that tension that leads to sanctification. That is the instrument whereby God refines us. Let's look at the book of Deuteronomy chapter one, verse one. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. We knew this before. We saw this in, in the book of Numbers. It should have, taken, should have taken 11 days. It took 40 years. This is because of God's divine judgment as he's refining his people. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month... 
Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him and commandment to them. So the whole Exodus takes 40 years. The book of Deut- we've, we've covered 39 years and 11 months, and now in the final month of the Exodus, that's where this is inspired. That's where this takes place. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and, and, and in Adrei, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and in the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, Jacob to give to them and their, and their offspring after them. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. Does this sound familiar? He's recapitulating some of the things that happened in Numbers. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes wise and experienced men and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. As we've studied the book of Genesis as a church, you may have just spotted something. There was a beautiful promise fulfilled just then. God spoke to Abraham while he was in his 90s, and he made an audacious promise. He told him to step outside of his tent. Step outside and look up. Right now, you're physically in a room and you can't see broad enough. He called him outside to look at the stars above. And he said, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And it just seems like this utterly implausible promise. It seems like this grandiose idea. It probably seemed absurd to Abraham, but what did we just read? I mean, the number of descendants is so vast that there are literally delegates responsible for thousands of people at a time. People who are responsible for thousands, responsible for hundreds, responsible for fifties, responsible for tens, and then officers over these guys. Like God has fulfilled that beautiful, audacious promise. The context ultimately for the nation of Israel is a covenant that God made with Abraham. That's where this nation came from. And 400 years after he made that promise, evidently he's fulfilled it, hasn't he? He promised in Genesis 22 to give to Abraham's descendants the the gates of their enemies. Here's Genesis 22, 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Do you remember what we just read about King Sihon, about King Og of Bashan? You're gonna see more about this when you read Deuteronomy chapter three, chapter four. And your offspring shall, uh, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's the opening context for the book of Deuteronomy. It is the first of three basic discourses that Moses gives to the nation, and then the closing chapters of the book tell of Moses' death. 
Now, our curriculum is gonna come from Deuteronomy chapter four, verse one through nine, and the next week's gonna cover chapter six. So, preaching between the passages covered by Explore the Bible, I wanna come from chapter five today. Would you look at Deuteronomy chapter five with me? Deuteronomy chapter five, we looked at the opening verses last week and we zoomed in on verse 17, the command not to murder as the primary text for last week's Sanctity of Human Life sermon. But now I wanted to look at the larger text. Here is Deuteronomy chapter five. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's the first of the 10 commandments. The second is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Do you remember the golden calf that the Israelites made for themselves out of their jewelry and then worshiped it? Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will, hold, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It is this, the third commandment that provides the context for one of the things that Jesus is going to teach about vows. Here's the fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your ox, your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You're going to see that theme come up over and over again in Deuteronomy. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. When we studied the book of Ephesians, we saw Ephesians 5 and 6 where Paul gives practical instructions for the family, for husbands, for wives, for children. He appeals to this commandment as a springboard into a New Testament teaching, pointing out it's the only commandment that comes with a promise. Here's commandment six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, meaning make a false accusation. The 10th and final commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. 
And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you, Moses speaks to Israel, came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. God is referred to as a consuming fire. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, Israel speaks to Moses, and we will hear it and do it. Moses responds, and the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. That's a first. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that I might go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you, God says to Moses, stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them and that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess." Whatever you do, do not think about cheese pizza right now. Don't. Don't think about cheese pizza. Don't think about cheese pizza. Don't don't think about cheese. You're thinking about cheese pizza. I could see it. Andrew, you're thinking about cheese pizza. Stop thinking about, stop. Okay, oh, together, we're all gonna do this. Everybody, on the count of three, just don't think about cheese pizza. One, two, three. <laughs> like, what are we all thinking about right now? They were thinking about the strings that the, the cheese makes when you lift the first slice off and the steam rises out of the box. Oh, somebody should tell the rock at the landing, they're about to get bombarded. When we fixate on the law, like Paul writes in Romans 7, the command not to covet just produces all covetousness. If we fixate on the thou shalt nots, it just makes our sin nature stand out all the more. This is, in fact, part of the purpose of the law itself, to point out our need for a savior. I don't need to be taught how to sin. I just desire to break rules because they're there. When I was at Clemson University drumming, I saw this perfect piece of glass. I had a sign on it that said, please don't leave handprints on the glass. I had no choice. Smack. I had to. <laughs> this is our sin nature. If you tell us not to do something, oh man, we're gonna figure out a million ways to do that thing. It's because of the command against it that it stirs up curiosity and this desire for the forbidden. I mean, this goes all the way back to Eden, doesn't it? Like the very first words that God ever gave to man were a qualification of man's freedom. You are free to eat any tree, but you may not eat of this one. What did they do? Ate of the one. Like it's, it's our sin nature. It's our sin nature. The law shows us how short we all fall from the standard of God. What has God just done in the Ten Commandments? He has just revealed much about his heart, hasn't he? 
We know what God thinks about thievery because we've seen God give a command to his people not to steal. We know exactly how God feels about adultery because he's just given a clear command, do not commit adultery. We know exactly how God feels about these sins because God has taught us directly in his commandments not to commit these particular sins. This is the most exquisite, comprehensive, and concise expression authoritatively of right from wrong that exists in the universe. God spoke, and then he was finished. That's important. That's not, just, that's not just the inclusion of innocuous details. It says that he spoke from the fire on the mountain, and he added no more. That took place thousands of years ago, and there have yet to be any additions to the Ten Commandments. God said it. He meant it. He, he completed his teaching. It was perfect, and it was done. That is the authority whereby Christians no right from wrong. But we as a culture have done away with it, haven't we? The inclusion of, for example, monuments to the Ten Commandments at our courthouses as an ode to the ultimate authority whereupon laws actually come from, the transcendent moral law that God has written on our hearts. These were viewed as an affrontery to the freedom of the state in an ironic reversal of the actual intent for separation of church and state. Separation of church and state is actually intended to protect the church from the state. But instead, this was used to say, like, no, do away with that authoritative reminder of morality itself. And so we obliged, and now we don't know where laws come from. Like, we don't know what morality actually is. It's kind of up for grabs, and it's constantly fluctuating. So my skeptical friend, I, I can relate, okay, I understand I know why it's difficult if you're having a hard time virtue signaling in a culture that's done away with this, this authoritative sense of morality. Because as we've utterly abandoned God's standard for right and wrong, what have we replaced it with? Well, kind of like whatever the self dictates. I mean, like I might have a standard for right and wrong. You have a totally different standard for right and wrong. This is the classic error. We call it postmodernism. It's actually the most trite thing ever. Like it's the exact anthem of every fallen society historically across thousands and thousands of years, but we call it progressive. All right, we're actually doing the exact same thing that every destroyed culture has ever done. We've abandoned right and wrong. Okay, acknowledging that morality is authoritative is not some sort of violation of separation of church and state to try to make you become a Christian by force of law. It's not what it is at all. Rather, it's acknowledging that our laws come from somewhere. They come ultimately from God. And to refer to that as an appeal to authority is itself an appeal to authority. By what standard is this not the standard? If we abdicate God as the basis for right and wrong, we find ourselves kind of just doing whatever pleases us, whatever makes us feel good or whatever makes us look good. I'm gonna offer you a pair of contacts and when you put them in, you're gonna have a hard time taking them out, okay? Spot the virtue signaling that is rampant in our culture. Spot it all over our government. Entire initiatives, political initiatives that don't do any measurable good. They don't produce any results. They were never intended to produce results. They were intended to make the people who signed it look good. That's all over our current legislation. Or look in your social media feed and spot the virtue signaling. 
How many people pretend to be passionate about the cause du jour? It's not actually that they're passionate. It's not actually that that redeems them anyway. It's that they just want to look virtuous. They want to cloak themselves in virtue. They want to be associated with something that looks good. It doesn't matter if it makes a difference. They just want to virtue signal. My friend, my skeptical friend, none of your virtue signaling will undo your depraved nature. You cannot virtue signal your way out of your own objective impurity. And you cannot virtue signal your way out of the consequences of things you've done that are wrong in the past. It doesn't work like that. You cannot undo evil you've done no matter how much good you do from here forward. You have something in common with your Christian friend who's caught up in what's called legalism. Legalism is the idea that we can add to the grace of God, that if we do these things, we'll be more righteous. We can increase our standing with God if we just follow these additional rules. Like there are, there are certain Christians and there's another class of Christian. There's Christianity and there's extra credit Christianity. And if you do these extra things, you'll increase your standing with God. My virtue signaling friend, you've just reinvented legalism. Virtue signaling is legalism. Both virtue signaling and legalism do nothing to undo your past sins. Both virtue signaling and legalism do nothing to transform your heart. Both virtue signaling and legalism are about making yourself look better. Here's the hint. If it makes you feel better about yourself, it's probably bad theology. Right? This, I told you, this sermon's gonna be brutal, and it's about to get worse. But there's grace upon grace upon grace at the end. Do you trust me? Journey further into what the text has said. Let's take Jesus in Matthew chapter five, who's gonna now, in a New Testament sense, build upon exactly what we've just read. We've just seen the law of God laid out. And there may be some of us here who say, you know, I'm in pretty good standing with that. I don't think I'm in all that bad a shape. I think I'm okay. All right, like I'm a faithful spouse. I haven't committed, I haven't committed adultery. I'm pretty, I'm pretty well off in that regard. I, I haven't stolen anything, at least not since I was five. All right, like I, I, think I'm, I think I'm in pretty good shape. All right, just wait, just wait, just wait. Look at what Jesus does with the text. Okay, here's Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do you think God meant the law? Remember, this is not the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. We're in Matthew. It's Jesus talking standing fully by the whole Old Testament law. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the most righteous dudes in town, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that's brutal. I mean, how many of you were hoping like, okay, we saw the law in Deuteronomy, and then when we get to Jesus, he's gonna say, psych, JK, LOL, didn't really mean that. This is called antinomianism. Antinomianism is a teaching against the law of God. Antinomianism, as you can see, just etymologically break, break it down, anti, against, the nomianism, etymologically similar to the title of the book, Deuteronomy, is against the law. 
Antinomianism says God didn't really mean the law. Antinomianism says like God wasn't really that serious about the law. The law doesn't really count. I mean, I don't think you can read the verses we just read in Matthew 5 and hold to an antinomian view. You can't, you can't count on God not really meaning what he said about the law. I mean, he said quite patently and quite clearly, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Like not one stroke of the pen of the law is ever gonna disappear. He's not come to abolish the law. He has come to fulfill the law. What was the intent of the law? In Old Testament Israel, the law was salvific, meaning adhering to this law saved you because it pointed forward to the Messiah. When we get to Romans chapter 10, the same chapter that precedes the verse I say at the end of every sermon, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We see Paul talk about the law, righteousness by the law, and then righteousness by faith. In the Old Testament sense, the law was salvific. The law shows us our need for a savior and the law, the law teaches us about God's character and God's heart. God means what he has said. The law is not dismissed. It's not cast out. It wasn't a can of fix a flat and now God really means it when he introduces New Testament salvation. He feels the exact same way about sin today that he did then. It is not that the law has been cast out, but that Jesus himself, as, he, as we've just read, fulfills the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Romans 10 reads, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for, for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes this is radical. Watch what Jesus is going to do with the law. Here begins the six antitheses, wherein structurally Jesus says, you have heard it said this, but I tell you that. Okay, watch this. Verse 21 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We picture this like somebody is here at Highlands, like this were an Old Testament temple, you make an offering here at the altar, it occurs to you, wait, I've got to make peace with my friend. You text her, you meet at Starbucks on 4th, and then you come back. It's not like the original context. People journeyed for days to get to Jerusalem, to get to the temple, to make their offering. I mean, what Jesus has just insisted upon Old Testament worshipers would lead to like a week's total travel time. Leave your offering, go make peace, and then come back. He's speaking to the heart of worship itself. It's not enough just to make an atonement offering. You have to actually make peace with your brother or sister. It's not enough just to not murder. If you've hated somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder in your heart. Consider verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I mean, Jesus has just raised the standard to its fullest extent. It's not enough just to not commit adultery. If you lust after somebody, that's adultery in your heart. So if you thought that you got a pass by adhering to that commandment in Deuteronomy 5, look at what Jesus does in Matthew 5. Every one of us now stands condemned. Every one of us, every one of us falls short of the, of, of the law of God. There's not one of us who's righteous enough. This is an incredibly high standard. Does Jesus have the authority to do this? Like, who is Jesus to take the word of God and do this with it? You've heard it said, but I tell you. Because two, two of the things he just listed were ten, two of the Ten Commandments. Remember, Jesus is the word of God. He is the word alive. He was the word in the beginning. In the beginning, he was with God. He is the word in flesh. By his very birth, the word of God was fulfilled prophetically, and when he spoke, words were added to the word of God. He has absolute authority to do this with scripture. And every one of us, every one of us is left painfully aware of how drastically short we all fall from the standard for holiness and perfection. Every one of us is left poor in spirit. Now, how does this sermon open? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and it leaves you feeling terribly bummed, then you understand what you're reading. It's because Jesus is establishing quite exquisitely the necessity for the coming crucifixion. Not only does he show us how we fall short of the Ten Commandments, he's now even going to rebut some of the additional teachings that were added on to the Ten Commandments. He's about to dismantle some of the teachings that were added in through the Talmud. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they would take the clear Ten Commandments and then add on to them these myriad lists of rules and regulations. All right, look at, look at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What he's just done is rebutted the false teachings in the Talmud. Deuteronomy 24 is one of our tough texts. So if you tune in for tough texts, you'll see us unpack more of Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 was dealt all of these addendums in the Talmud, this separate document that Pharisees and Sadducees developed, and they included other qualifiers for divorce, such as, I quote, fading beauty. If a meal is cooked and burnt, that was considered grounds for divorce in the Talmud. So do you see what Jesus has just done? He has just reminded them of the true standard. He said, if you divorce on those those petulant grounds, you're committing adultery. So the only grounds that God gave in Deuteronomy 24 for divorce was marital unfaithfulness. So it's not just a reiteration of the obvious, it's a dismissal of all the false inclusions. Here's verse 33. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Do you remember the third commandment, not to take the name of the Lord in vain? Pharisees thought they found a clever way around this by saying, rather than swearing by the name of the Lord, I'll swear by my head. I'll swear by heaven. I'll swear by the earth. And Jesus has just utterly removed their ability to do that. And it echoes something that we saw when we studied James. Here's James 5, 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Jesus has just simply said this, stop making oaths, try to get around the third commandment. Just have integrity and mean what you say. Say only what you mean and say nothing else. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. He's speaking directly against the legalism of the Pharisees. Here's verse 38. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Tell me if you can see the crucifixion foreshadowed in what Jesus teaches here. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, doubling the, the required distance by a Roman official to help him carry a load. Give to the one who begs from you. and Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, the sixth and final of the six antitheses, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Hate your enemy never appears in the Old Testament text. He is once again rebutting an addendum to the, in the Talmud so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors had a bad reputation for charging more than people actually owed and keeping the difference. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore, here comes the, here comes the absolute coup de grace, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There's the law, fully applied. There's the standard. So what are we to do? We cannot possibly earn salvation on our own because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Romans chapter eight opens, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Is anybody in this room in Christ Jesus? Whew, isn't this good news? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement will be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God has paid in full our debt brought on us by sin. Praise God for that. Because every one of us has fallen short. I mean, man, if your self-righteousness was intact by the time we got to Matthew 5, 27, I'm sure it was dismantled by 28. I'm sure it was in smithereens by the time we got to be perfect. Perfect. 
Not a one of us could claim to be righteous after hearing what Jesus just said. This is the lens through which I want you to read Deuteronomy. Do you understand? That's what this sermon is, is nothing more than a lens for you to go home and read your Bible filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Take our sin debt, which is bigger than the note on a mortgage by somebody who's bought a house anywhere near here in the past year, (laughs) and imagine that sin debt being paid in full. Tetelestai, paid in full. Would you look to Jesus on the cross in John 19? Here's what Jesus said about our deficiency according to the law. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, there's one last prophecy to be fulfilled while Jesus is on the cross. I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. What was finished? Our debt according to the law of God. He took upon himself the full debt that we owe, that we could never pay. He took our sin and he nailed it to the cross. And then he said, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Tetelestai paid in full. And then three days later, he rose again in victory over death, over sin, over hell itself. Thank you, Jesus. It is finished. If the standard, the law of God has illuminated you how sinful you are and you see your need for a savior, you see quite clearly, my friend, welcome to the family of God. That which illuminates that in your heart is the Holy Spirit of God. And so if seeing your need for a savior by the standard of God and seeing the grace poured out by Jesus on the cross, would you give your life to him right now by praying God's word to God? Pray with me. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus alone is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.